everyone. Welcome to Shrinks Talk Shop, a podcast where psychotherapists share their thoughts with you, and you don't have to be a therapist to listen and to learn. Shrinks Talk Shop is a product of On Good Authority, a provider of continuing education for mental health professionals. And I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credit they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of psychotherapy experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of those interviews with you. First, a quote from this week's speaker, Dr. Mark Smaller, past president of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Whether it's political or social, um, those kinds of issues need to be um, addressed, and the more they're discussed openly, and sometimes with you know, full disclosure on the part of, of the therapist, um, what you often will find is that those pretty hot topics that seem to have only to do with what's going on today have a long history to them. So now as therapists, let's, let's get into the direct therapeutic relationship. So it could happen, and it probably does happen very often, that somebody in our practice will have uh, a very different point of view politically than we do, and could be very provocative about, or insistent, whether you're a liberal therapist or a conservative therapist and you're talking to somebody of the other, other school of thought. Um, what, how do you handle that? Do you try to sidestep the whole issue? Uh, what are your thoughts about that, Mark? Um, that is a great question, Barbara, and I hope that we were going to get into some uh, um, in that regard because I think it speaks to um, certainly uh, uh, a familiar experience for me, um, and I and I'm sure of many of your uh, subscribers and listeners. I think that um, um, there are many issues that emerge in the clinical setting that have to do with uh, uh, likenesses and differences between the patient and the therapist or the analyst. And um, uh, the first thing that uh, I, I would suggest in terms of how one handles that is, in the words of my very first social work supervisor, oh, so many years ago, um, who used to say in response to complex questions, well, um, and he used to smoke this cigar, and, it, and, and in, in the midst of the smoke, he'd say, well, it really depends. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm paying University of Chicago tuition to get this kind of response. Well, it depends. And yet, um, probably one of my first uh, uh, and most important um, professional lessons was, it depends. I think how one handles it depends on the context in which those differences make themselves known in a clinical moment, uh, depending on whatever else might be going on. There may be times that the, the, the issue of a political difference between 
the the patient and the therapist um, is is an issue that needs to be understood, discussed, sort of um, flushed out, and then responded to by the therapist uh, without necessarily getting into so much of a discussion about those differences. However, in this current socio-political climate, I think this kind of issue probably has come up much more frequently in the clinical setting, and I think it still has to be handled um, extremely carefully, um, but sometimes uh, the acknowledgement of those differences as opposed to not speaking about them, um, the acknowledgement of those differences can be very um, useful and lead to not only a fruitful what may be political discussion, but also a very important um, uh, uh, clinical kind of discussion um, that's going to, you know, have hopefully facilitate a, 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 an outcome that moves the treatment forward. There are always going to be so-called reality issues, differences, likenesses between patient and therapist, and also transferential issues that just need airtime and an opportunity to be discussed and understood. Any, any way you could give a, 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 a hypothetical example of that so that if, if I come in and I'm seeing you and, and I'm and I'm saying, how can you possibly be a supporter of this person? You know, how can you possibly, how can I be talking to you when you have such a, a different worldview than I do? And, and how can I think that you're even in the, same, in the same world that I'm in? So how do you, what do you say then? So nine times out of ten, or maybe slightly less, there are going to be um, uh, those kinds of differences expressed in a treatment uh, and, and, and one, and especially an in-depth treatment. There may be many issues about which uh, I might have a very different opinion than my patient, and my patient may know it, whether it's political or social. Um, those kinds of issues need to be um, addressed, and the more they're discussed openly, and sometimes with, you know, full disclosure on the part of, of the therapist, um, what you often will find is that those pretty hot topics that seem to have only to do with what's going on today have a long history to them. So, for example, I do have a patient um, who um, uh, recently um, uh, made his position, his political position, uh, very clear to me, and it was, you know, obviously very different than mine, uh, and uh, this was a patient who um, had supported um, the, and, and still supports the current president. But after some long discussion about it, it becomes clear both to my patient and to me that one of the reasons that this patient is particularly attracted to this particular president and, and, and through the candidacy was that what he likes about him is his directness, is his, you know, uh, 
um, uh, you know, will express a point of view without any hesitation, which is in complete contrast to this patient's uh, father growing up, who was often very disappointing, traumatically disappoint disappointing, because that father would never come sort of to, to the defense of this patient as a child, would never take a, a strong position, and he turned out to be a father with whom this patient just could not comfortably identify, and it was the source of tension in that relationship throughout his childhood. Again, what's important about that, is it the political difference that's important, or is it most important that he and I sort out something about the meaning of this particular current situation, the meaning that it takes on to him, uh, and based on what's going on between him and I in the present, in the transference, and also in the history. And that was a very useful and good clinical discussion. Well, how would, how would somebody, how would a patient know uh, the therapist's point of view? Uh, I mean, it could be that the patient could be going on about their opinions about the election or about anything, and they notice that the therapist is pushed a little bit back in the chair, has raised an eyebrow, uh, has started to fidget, or, or you know, done some physical thing that's given a, given away the therapist's uh, uncomfort with it. Um, there are all kinds of ways in which therapists may communicate his or her political position, social position, all kinds of things without even being aware of it, right? Um, you and I know this. Um, in this particular instance, um, this patient became very aware of my political position because he happened to see me driving down the street years ago and I had um, an Obama bumper sticker on the back of my car. So he knew um, uh, where I stood, um, at least at that time, politically. And uh, even at that time, before the more recent uh, discussion, um, we used to have um, uh, all kinds of on-the-surface political discussions, but really they had something to do with some issues that had originally brought this patient um, for help. But, there, you know, whether you disclose or not, there are ways that you communicate your discomfort and that needs to be addressed, and usually, once it is, is a very fruitful, certainly clinical discussion. Mark, I want to approach this from a, a slightly different angle. We've, we've talked about what to do or how to handle it when a client, patient, comes in very agitated or they're very upset about uh, uh, certain public figures or certain um, political or social conditions, and they come in and they're you know they're really going on about it. And we've talked about what to do, how to respond. Now, what about not responding at all? In other words, the therapist would just not say a word about it, not just respond just sit and wait. I mean, it's almost like the old analytic blank screen situation. Well, it depends on the context in which 
um, maybe uh, such a reaction of a client or patient comes up, whether it's about um, a political figure they're having a reaction to or um, any kind of um, uh, social issues um, situation, um, you certainly want to listen because how a particular patient at a particular moment in time experiences uh, reactions to the world around them is going to very much be determined by sort of who they are and their particular, for lack of a better way of saying it, subjectivity. So um, uh, somebody comes in and they're concerned about an issue having to do with racism. Um, uh, either they've witnessed something or they've been the object of some kind of uh, racial biased behavior. And you, you certainly want to listen to hear what that experience, what meaning that experience takes on to that particular patient. And it, and it may be different. So you're always listening. Would I, can I imagine that I would never respond or, or I would in some uh, psychoanalytic caricature of the old analyst, um, you know, just sit and be silent. Um, it's hard to imagine that. I'd certainly want to acknowledge somebody's, ex you know, very real experience, but it seems to me that if I'm doing my job, I'm going to try to tease out what that particular experience means to that particular person at that moment in time. And it's going to be different because how I might experience being the object of, um, uh, let's say, the object of uh, somehow feeling or being bullied in the workplace is going to, based on my history, my experience, it's going to be very different than, than uh, someone else's. And it, it seems to me our job is to tease out the uniqueness of that person and their experience. Because if you, let's say, you don't respond at all, that would just seem to me to complicate that adds another layer of of problem absolutely and you know I, I mean one of the um, I think one of the most important um, contributions of um, of Heinz Kohut was uh, and then and was later um, uh, more fully developed by Howard Bacall uh, was this idea of optimal responsiveness. Now, in, in that term sort of emerged um, in, in reaction to what classical psychoanalysis used to refer to as optimal frustration. It was the, the job that it was inevitable that the analyst would do or not do things that would uh, frustrate the patient and the job of the analyst and the patient was to collaborate about the nature of that frustration. Optimal responsiveness, you know, is a ex much more experienced near, near term, and it, it's really about um, how you're going to respond to a particular patient in a way that makes them feel just that responded to. Some patients, for example, might want or need me to be particularly quiet. Um, maybe their history has to do with intrusive caretakers. So my being quiet is something that's optimal, if you will, for them. Another patient, though, may experience uh, uh, the silence on my part as an indifference or a boredom. 
um, based on whatever their history was with indifferent parents or parents who were particularly unattuned. So, you know, one, as one sort of lives, if you will, in the treatment or the analysis with a patient, you learn what is optimally the best for that person, what facilitates um, their growth, and certainly what facilitates the movement forward of the, of the psychotherapy or the analysis. Oh, that's really interesting. That's very, um, that's very helpful because the client could think, well, my therapist isn't responding to me because he doesn't agree with me or my therapist isn't responding to me because he does agree with me and he doesn't want me to know or um, he doesn't agree with me and thinks I'm, thinks I'm stupid, thinks I'm being ridiculous, uh, etc. So many different ways that re not responding could be interpreted. And that's not the point. I don't think that would be the point of a, tr of a regular non-analytic, you know, psychotherapy. We're in the middle of an interview with Mark Smaller, and I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrink's Talk Shop, continuing our conversation. I think also you raise a good point because some patients may want um, uh, to know what, what is my political view. And, um, uh, and with some people, it, it might be, <laughs> again, optimally responsive to share that. With somebody else, they might experience that as being intrusive. They actually don't really want to know that. They might be curious about it, but not necessarily ask. Um, again, it depends on the person. It depends on the particular moment in time in the treatment. Uh, but I will say that under current political situations where there are such strong feelings um, expressed on, uh, on both sides of a, uh, a continuum of sort of more liberal to more conservative, um, those kinds of issues I suspect are coming up much more frequently in, in psychodynamic, psychoanalytic treatments. And how they're handled, how they're managed by the therapist or the analyst is a complex kind of, of thing. There are no sort of easy right or wrong answers. These are not black and white situations, but complexity, I think, is important. And, you know, but I think any good psychotherapy or good analysis always demands um, uh, an acceptance of complexity and, uh, and, and, and a sort of teasing out about what's going to be the most therapeutic or analytic to to a patient and how you respond, how much you share or don't share, disclose or don't d disclose, really depends on that individual treatment. By complexity, you mean what? By complexity, I mean uh, with one patient, they may want or need me because of it, some historical um, experiences, historical traumatic experiences, they may want or need me to, to share something about my political views about a social issue. Um, with someone else, depending on their history, 
um, uh, it, it might be inappropriate. It might be experienced as intrusive and potentially interfering with the treatment moving forward. So, in the words of my very first social work supervisor, it really depends. And it depends on context, the person, where the treatment process is, and uh, the therapist or, or analyst job is to, to, you know, be very clear about that and try to tease out what's going to work for one person at that particular moment in time. If the therapist seems uh, hyper-interested, you know, much more, oh, hello, uh, wakes up in a sense or <clears throat> pays a lot more attention to, to these comments, either on the positive or the negative side, what, what might that say to the patient? Well, again, it, it really depends. I mean, uh, if, you know, suddenly the, the therapist is, is quite uh, active or responsive uh, in terms of a political discussion, that's going to be a communication to the patient. It, let's say if it's in the context of the therapist, you know, previously being more quiet about these kinds of issues. But let's say the therapist has a lot of feelings uh, about that, that particular social or political issue. Um, he or she is going to respond in a way that obviously says something to the patient. Now, it may, in that moment, be unclear what it's communicating to the patient, but if, if um, one is uh, listening, you know, analytically, therapeutically, within a few sessions, you're going to hear what meaning that took on to a, a patient. So, for example, I have a patient who felt particularly traumatized by the election of our president, um, and uh, because there were attributes of him that felt to her so similar to what her very um, physically and verbally abusive father, what he was like, you know, for her growing up. Um, when I shared with her at some point that I had similar concerns um, uh, in sharing a political view, um, on the one hand, she experienced that, in a, in, a, in a way of feeling great relief that, you know, she could openly and freely talk about this, um, her concerns and what was really uh, um, some of her trauma experienced even currently. Um, but at the same time, as the treatment moved forward, um, she also said that sometimes she was aware that the focus on other people's bullying-like or abusive-like behavior was also a way for her to not think about some of her own anger and how she at times could be very unreasonable towards people, that she traced that to this kind of identification with this very abusive father. And, and in reaction to that, sometimes she could be you know, unreasonably angry in a way to push people away. So, you know, that made that emerge, but, you know, it, it wasn't the end of the story with just that sense of relief that she felt we might be on a similar page socially or politically, um, but it was also used in a kind of protective or defensive way. So, Mark, what about the duty to warn? Again, I think that, um, um, as we were discussing before, um, 
how one feels about that individually if one feels like a leader or a public figure is potentially dangerous um, to others in this case no I you know we're familiar with this clinically when we decide uh, a duty to warn if we hear a patient talking in, uh, and and there's a it sounds like there's a clear risk of either harming themselves or others. Um, I think that in this kind of situation, obviously making the case that somebody, a leader, is potentially a danger to others um, is might be a more complicated process, but if one feels that one can make the case for that, and has a rationale about that, um, I think one has to um, uh, step up and make that case and, and in, in doing so um, uh, are fulfilling a duty to warn. Um, obviously, there will be some who disagree with the case that is made because the argument will be, well, is this a political you know, case that you're making, or is it a case based on your professional expertise? Uh, the problem with, for example, a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic perspective is that it often, uh, it's not a perspective that necessarily can predict um, uh, destructive or potentially destructive behavior. Um, but, you know, obviously, better to err on the side of, of um, being, you know, overly reactive in this regard than to not react at all. I mean, the example is, you know, um, psychiatrists um, did not, psychoanalysts did not speak up as Hitler came to power, and um, uh, maybe they should have, although one sort of doubts even if they had um, whether that would have done much for me. And also, um, uh, the Nazi regime, and certainly Adolf Hitler, um, was very much um, uh, suspicious and very much against anything that had to do with psychoanalysis. And um, many of those psychiatrists who did not speak up were psychoanalysts. It's an interesting issue because the duty to warn is very specific. In other words, you have to know a specific imminent threat and who it's directed to. It's a slippery slope, it seems, to try to make a case that we have a duty to warn according to what a clinical duty to warn is. This seems to be more of an ethical issue. Do our ethical codes call for us to override any restrictions on political discourse in the interest of the harm in their minds that is being done to people? Yeah, I, I think that yeah, I think that it becomes a much more complicated task to again to make that case. Um, uh, but uh, again, if uh, one is uh, uh, speaking from one's personal and professional sense of conscience, that and, and one feels. Um, uh, that they can at least make some kind of case, uh, I think one has a responsibility to at least put it forward. How do we handle it when the people consulting with us want to know what to do or how to handle what they perceive as danger? One aspect of 
what many people and certainly our patients um, uh, have in common that there's there is a certain level of helplessness that you know emerges and it's a traumatic level of helplessness that can then be particularly disruptive uh, even in regards to day-to-day -day functioning and I think our jobs uh, uh, our job as, as, as clinicians is to try to be a witness um, and acknowledge that kind of uh, helplessness and, um, uh, and, and then it may have a history to it in terms of um, that individual but I think also we can work with a patient to develop ways to sort of manage and integrate and cope with that um, whether it's to become for example more politically involved because if you feel like you're doing something to affect a change, it's obviously going to, you know, make you feel less helpless. It may be just a, a process of talking through that sense of helplessness. And if that's done in a responsive and empathic kind of milieu, that even that will help that level and have it be reduced so that that level of fear and helplessness is no longer so disruptive. So it's addressing the clinical issue, not the political issue, even though it's about the political issue? I think you sometimes can and need to do both. And it's, you have to acknowledge the reality. There, there is a certain level of social political helplessness that many people are experiencing these days. I, I, I think that's a reality, and I think that needs to be acknowledged. And also that political social reality takes on a very particular meaning to every individual and what it means to me makes me maybe something different than it means to you or others based on our own personal subjective histories and so we want to take into account all of that as we're as we're doing our clinical listening well mark do you um in the few minutes we have left, is there anything you'd like to add? Any, any thoughts you have that we haven't gotten to? I really would want to underscore, you know, something about responding, uh, mental health professionals responding to all kinds of social political issues. Um, I think that, uh, you know, this is certainly not true of, um, of the profession of social work, certainly in the profession of psychoanalysis. Up until maybe the last 25 or 30 years, there had been a great deal of, uh, of reluctance of psychoanalysts to be responsive to these kinds of issues and offer, I think, useful and helpful perspectives about these issues. And that I would encourage uh, mental health professionals um, at every opportunity that they have, whether it's speaking to the media, writing letters to the editor, speaking with, you know, at public, you know, with public uh, um, uh, community groups. Um, we live in a world that is uh, in need of and can make use of our expertise. And just as importantly, what's going on in our communities, whether it's a local community or our national or international community, is that we as mental health professionals have a lot to learn from our communities, a lot to learn both in terms of how we can be effect, an, an effective voice in those communities, but also uh, uh, understanding 
community issues, social issues in a way that can enrich our respective fields, whether they be social work, psychoanalysis, psychiatry, psychology. And um, the more we do that, the better. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a need for it, and I think there are opportunities to speak out in all kinds of ways, and hopefully mental health professionals will take advantage of those opportunities. Well, I agree totally, Mark, and thanks again for sharing your thoughts with us. It's given me a lot to think about. Me too, so, and I want to thank you for inviting me. I've already formulated at least two more um, potential op-ed pieces. That was Mark Smaller, and I'm Barbara Alexander. Here's what's on tap for our next podcast. Every five or ten years or so, the American Psychiatric Association issues a new Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM-5. This often causes upheaval in the way the mental health world views diagnoses, treats, and pays for mental illness. So next we'll look at how this DSM-5 has changed the way we look at eating disorders. So don't miss it. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. I hope you'll join me next week for that interview. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.